Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome to episode number eight of At the End of the Day, a show about the lost art of medicine for those of you who are dissatisfied with healthcare's status quo. I'm Andy DeLeo, better known as Cancer Geek, and I've got my co-hosts with me today. Hey, Andy. <laughs> How's it going? Reporting live from my carpet and blanket cave in my basement. Well, I have to say this is probably, what, the eighth take of my intro so far, so... Hopefully, uh, from here on out, I won't have any blunders. I can't promise that, but I will edit it out. <laughs> Speaking of blunders, um, I think it actually is a really good segue into our first topic. Uh, the first topic today happens to, to do with some recent news that literally just came out late last night. Um, it was announced that our president, as well as the first lady, uh, tested positive for COVID-19. Um, I think, you know, throughout this morning and this afternoon, there's been a lot of uh, political, you know, news stories, updates, rhetoric in regards to, you know, what does this mean now that uh, the president tested positive? Uh, so I guess I'm going to start with that and kind of open it up to, to both of you. What are your thoughts on this? Um, you know, kind of what's your initial gut reaction? How, how are you sort of uh, taking this personally? So I think this is a terrible thing. I mean, you know, my heart goes out to the president and his wife. I hope they, you know, are able to recover from this. They get better, um, and it doesn't, you know, they have a mild case of this. Um, I'm not sure if you two are aware, but I actually was diagnosed with coronavirus. Yeah, so I got diagnosed in uh, March, and I ended up going through, you know, I guess a mild form of it. And it was interesting because. You know, my wife was home, she was pregnant, and we had my two other kids at our home. Kind of didn't feel well, really, really just tired, not myself. Head was foggy, um, and no other symptoms, no fevers at all, and no shortness of breath. And then I just started having like night sweats, which I never have. I just all of a sudden just started having night sweats and um, never had any fevers. I waited about a week and it just didn't go away. And I'm like, something's off. Let me just go get a COVID test. And I went and got tested again, a week after my symptoms started, and um, it came back positive. So subsequently, we tested my wife as well. And her test, ironically, came back negative. So even though we were living in the same house, we really weren't taking any kind of isolation precautions, her test was negative. Um, so thankfully, you know, we did okay uh, in my household. But, uh, it, it, you know, it's something that is serious, that should be taken seriously. And I wish the president and his wife a speedy recovery, and I wish them well. That's a that's a very good and kind response that I think a lot of people are having a hard time finding right now because of the entire dumpster fire that you see outside of your window every day. And I think I've got two thoughts on this. One, my initial reaction was, I'm not surprised. Many people in the in the White House administration have been being exposed to the coronavirus and and catching it. So 
I think it was just a matter of time, just based off of proximity to so many people who have been diagnosed with coronavirus, that no matter how many checks and balances that you have, this is a very virulent disease and can be spread very easily. So uh, on one hand, I'm not surprised. On the other hand, some people are very conspiratorial on this, saying that this is potentially a hoax to hide during debate time and to come out on the other end with nothing wrong and to supplement the uh, hoax QAnon conspiracies of the virus being just not that bad or just a hoax. So I will stand with you, OS, with compassion and say, I hope, you know, nobody deserves to die from this virus. Nobody deserves to go through the trauma, the pain of, of this. And I hope for the best for them. And I hope that it is not some evil conspiratorial plot hatched in the minds of uh, people who are not very right with the world. Yeah. And, you know, from my perspective, I think the first the first thing, you know, from from my point of view is, is first and foremost, you know, the health and the well-being of both um, our first lady as well as our president. I think that's, you know, sort of the the first thing. Um, so I wish them and, uh, you know, their aides and, you know, the Secret Service and everyone else that's just surrounded and impacted by this. I wish them all um, well and the best. And hopefully, you know, uh, any form of um, symptoms that they are experiencing, hopefully it, it will be mild um, and they won't, you know, sort of be suffering the, the worst of what this um, coronavirus means to, to people that are infected. Uh, so that's kind of the first thing. I think the second thing is, is, you know, from my perspective, all of this is not, ne- not necessarily always about everyone else, but it's about me in the moment, the choices that I make, and realizing that that choice uh, fundamentally has an opportunity to scale and impact other people. Um, Earlier uh, in the the week, I actually wrote a piece on this, uh, which kind of goes back to, you know, the power of N of 1. You guys both know that N of 1 is something that I'm very passionate about. Um, And I think on today's topic, uh, the other topics that we've got selected, it kind of reinforces that, whether it's stoicism, whether it's philosophy, whether it's healthcare, whether it's uh, the decision to, to wear a mask, whether it's what we believe in or how we react to what's going on, the, the news and the media, um, it begins with us. It begins with our choice and our decisions. And I think specifically to now this announcement um, that this pandemic has you know, not only imp- uh, impacted our economy, our schools, every sort of uh, fabric within life as we know it, the reality is is that this is really impacting people. Um, and it doesn't matter, you know, race, creed, color, religion, sex, orientation, money, everyone's open to it and everyone uh, can equally sort of suffer the, the ramifications and the impact of it. And this is really where it comes back to, you know, those decisions. 
Uh, and I would just encourage everyone to remember that all of us have the power to make a difference. We have an opportunity to turn all of this around for ourselves, for our children, for our community, and for our businesses. We have the power to turn the tide, to make a difference, and to save lives. But this decision is really about upholding our social contract to protect us all. It's a powerful decision, and this decision, it begins with me, it begins with UOS, it begins with UAJ, and it begins with all the, the people out there that listen to the words that, that we bring to them on a weekly basis. Um, it's a decision that happens at the end of one, and you know, through all of this, it's about, you know, are we making a decision to potentially save a life or take away a life? Um, and so that truly is the the power of the end of one. And I think when it comes to to this topic, for me, that's the big takeaway. I couldn't agree with you more, Andy. So I want to talk a little bit about racism towards healthcare professionals today. Um, there was a physician that wrote an, a, an article related to his, his experience with a racist patient. So essentially, the patient told his physician, why don't you go back to India? Um, and this physician, taking it personally, you know, said what many of us would be thinking in our heads. Uh, he told that patient, why don't you leave this effing hospital? Um, this physician then reassigned his patient's care to another physician and subsequently wrote an essay called The Racist Patient, which was published and featured in the New York Times. So the essay generated controversy and two different kinds of responses. The first set being sympathetic towards a physician, mostly from those that also experienced similar situations and whose own institutions did not have policies in place to protect abuse from patients. The second set of responses were that of healthcare workers um, are held high, to a higher ethical standard that they should ignore their personal feelings and care for these patients regardless of their views. So this physician felt that the traditional institutional perspective on abusive racist patients in medicine's own version um, of the customer's always right. Being a medical professional means putting yourself aside, sacrificing your own feelings, and rising above any abuse. So I want to try to unpack this multifaceted issue. So I'll ask you guys, have you ever experienced something similar to what this physician went through? And do you feel his actions were justified? So let me go first as the only white person on the podcast. I feel it's my place to speak for you guys as minorities, right? <laughs> that was sarcasm. Please don't at me. No, I actually, I actually had a very interesting experience when I was living overseas. And I have had very intriguing experiences where I had a an older gentleman about my grandfather's age while walking by me and another friend who were the only white people in the group in at a train station and he looked at us saw us stopped picked up his umbrella like it was a gun and pretended to shoot us and in a very mean way and then just kept walking and we both looked at each other in that cartoonish way like did that just happen what what is going on in real life and there was that. And I, I think that's the biggest, most racist thing I've had happen to me. Um, I have been told. Now, AJ, was that in Japan? You know, I, I didn't want to name it because I name dropped. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I named dropped Japan so much uh, before. I didn't want to 
do that. Right. But yes, it, it was in Japan, and and there is, you know, that country as a whole, inadvertently, is very prideful of who they are and their ethnicity, their history, their culture. So there is, I feel, there is extreme racism there, but I don't think it's intentionally meant to be as hurtful and full of vitriol as we experience here in America. Um, but that that's about the worst that I've had. So I, I consider myself okay with with those experiences. I've got I've I've had it pretty easy in that regard, I think. Andy, what about you? So I think the the direct question of have I experienced um, racism from a patient? Uh, I don't think I've directly ever experienced racism. Um, I have been in certain situations because of uh, religious beliefs in which I've been asked to leave a room because I'm male and perhaps uh, we were treating or caring for a female. Um, and because of religious or personal beliefs, um, I was asked to leave the room because, you know, due to uh, the area in which we were treating, um, it was just more of a, a comfort level and a privacy issue. Um, and so from that perspective, you know, I think the patient has every right to request that and, and that's, I guess, you know, sort of normal. Um, I guess on the, the more kind of business side of things, kind of coming up through the ranks and um, the like, I have encountered that uh, administratively with either colleagues or people that I reported to um, and whatnot. And it's, it's always been interesting. It's always been very fascinating to me uh, in those moments in which you've got a leader that is highly regarded. Um, they're trying to lead a business, but fundamentally uh, they view you differently because, you know, the pigmentation of your skin uh, may be different or the words that you choose at times uh, may convey a very different meaning. Um, so, you know, that's my sort of personal experience inside of, of medicine. So can I ask you guys a question in regards to this? Yes, sure. So uh, until very recently, I never really understood the idea of institutionalized racism, what that meant. Do you feel that that plays a role in situations of workplace uh, etiquette, the interactions you have with patients? Because up until recent, uh, recently, I, I listened to the podcast seen on radio and they did this fascinating series about seeing white and they kind of deconstructed what does institutionalized racism mean and i didn't even realize or know the history of supreme court laws about who is considered caucasian and who is not who's white who's not and that there are actually laws on the book that helped institutionalize those color barriers um do you see this as as more of a historical thing in our culture that's just continuously coming down the pipeline? Is it improving in your minds? Is it getting worse in the short term versus long term? 
I don't even know where to start. Um, so, <laughs> you know, to, for me, it's interesting. I live on the East Coast just outside of New York City. And, you know, it's such a big melting pot here that they're really, you know, me personally, I haven't been the subject of any type of racial bias, um, you know, all throughout my career, whether it was, uh, you know, working as a radiation therapist, you know, working in the clinic, uh, admin, working administratively. Um, you know, fortunately for me, I really haven't experienced that even where I live. Um, you know, we have a good mix of different cultures and people. And, you know, I get along really well with all my neighbors that are, you know, different nationalities. I really can't say from any personal experiences um, if I've had any anything to say about that, to be honest with you. Yeah. From my perspective, um, I think it's a really interesting question. I think whether it's the world of medicine, whether it's the world of business, whether it's communities, um, I think there is some inherent institutional bias and racism that is built uh, into our, our system. That's just part of the country's history. Um, I think there are pockets within the U.S. in which those are more rampant and I think they are amplified um, just because, again, of the history of sort of that part of the region. Um, so if you think of, you know, areas maybe, you know, south of the Mason-Dixie line, uh, line um, the deep south, uh, you think of other pockets that maybe are predominantly white, um, larger cities, uh, you see see that. And I think it's amplified um, based on the, the part of the U.S. that, that you're in. I think the one thing that, you know, we started this with is sort of this physician's experience um, and then this physician sort of taken in response to that experience, which I think kind of goes back to, you know, what does it mean to be a physician and the Hippocratic oath that they take, uh, which is to do no harm, to care for patients and to you know, truly practice the art of medicine at the N of one. Uh, when that N of one um, happens to have an inherent, you know, belief in racism or superiority or fear, uh, you as, as a physician or that person as a physician, how are they supposed to handle that? Uh, and I think that's where we kind of need to understand that the physicians are humans and they're people and they have feelings. And as much as physicians are sort of put on a pedestal that, you know, they can tackle and manage anything, we also have to realize that there's a, an emotional component to what it means to be a physician. And I think in those situations in which a physician does experience that, that the physician has to have the ability to sort of speak up and either hand that patient off to someone else or step out of the situation or, you know, do what's right, not only for the patient, 
but for themselves as well. Um, that's kind of, I guess, when I go back to the, the origin of the topic, that's kind of what I think is, is the root of the question. And so, you know, I pose that back to both of you is, you know, how do you think about it? Well, Andy, let me take it one step further. Um, you know, you talk about the physician, but let's talk about the institution itself that the physician is working in. Do you think the institution should do more to support physicians and healthcare workers that are subjected to these types of patients? Yes. No, no. Take, take a second to think about it. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 the reason why I say yes immediately without any hesitation is that we have to, to call the reality of what medicine is. I use the word medicine specifically because I disagree with what medicine has turned into, which is healthcare. It is a scaled mediocrity of what medicine used to be in a post-industrial world. We have commoditized, we have pretty much taken all of the science, we've handed it over to the MBAs and we've believed their BS that if they pull the MDs, the PhDs, and the MD-PhDs out of the mix, that they can run this business better than, than a physician can. Um, and because of that, we have also taken out all of the support system, all of the continuous sort of education. We have removed um, the, the awareness on what it means to practice and live in this world. And so, yes, I a thousand percent believe that the institutions, whether it's a hospital, a clinic, or this pseudo thing we call healthcare, um, needs to do more. And fundamentally, they haven't. And, and I think both physicians and patients suffer because of it. I, I think you're, you're right, Andy. And you know, I think institutionally, most centers are moving in this direction and they're realizing that physicians and other healthcare workers have employment rights that need to be you know, balanced with uh, the patient's rights and they need to take care of their own staff and not let them be subject to this kind of racist you know, bigotry behavior. Um, and you know, based on this article, there were examples that they gave. Um, and then even I think about a week or two ago on Twitter, there was a physician that uh, posted a, a comment about racial discrimination uh, in their workplace. And another physician responded, and I thought that was excellent, where he said that, you know, they were rounding and it was getting late. And one of the one of uh, the patients asked one of the residents, do you even have a green card? And the attending immediately called him out and put an end to that and then apologized to the resident. You know, you need more mentors and people to step up, say, no, you can't do this. It's not the right setting. And and really, you know, take charge of these type of uh, things to nip them in the butt immediately. So let me interject a, a little something that I've learned in my short time here on this crazy planet is I grew up with a family that judged people by their character. So these are thoughts that have never really popped in my head. Uh, maybe as a late teenager with my edgy, dark humor, bad 
terrible jokes that I wish I could sometimes forget uh, wherever uttered out of my mouth. But I grew up with you judge people based off of what they do, what they say, their character, right? Now, I've seen my parents as we've as we've grown uh, in different types of settings. My parents um, about, gosh, it would, it would be about 20, 25 years ago, moved to the middle of nowhere in western Wisconsin, basically cabin country for Minnesotans. And as they've lived there, I have seen their thoughts, their comments, their entire political spectrum outlook on life and on people change so dramatically that I tell, I tell people they make libertarians look like communists. And it's been very saddening to see these people who taught me to see everybody on the same same way go down this road where now they believe everything that's posted on Facebook. I feel I feel like I've had to become the parent now that you know don't believe everything you see on TV, don't believe everything you see on Facebook. And it's really helped me realize that these kind of thoughts, these kinds of comments like the green card comment, these are not natural states of humanity. These are learned from people before us, the people around us, the culture we we live in. I have a six and a four-year-old that they don't, they notice that finally they, they have noticed that people have different skin colors in them, but it is never, ever anything other than, oh, they have, they have black skin. They have brown skin. They have dif- different skin than me. Okay. No problem. They, they go to, when they were going to school pre pandemic, they had classes that were so much more diverse than I ever had. And it's just normalized. So how does, how does someone get all the way to medical school to residency and to make such a comment like that? I just, to me, it just, in my head, there's just the, the gear stop grinding when I hear comments like that, because I just can't fathom a world or an outlook where you would see someone that's even living in this country to say, oh, you must need a green card to be here. Because to have a job to get to residency, to go through medical school, yeah, they probably have a green card after 12 years of schooling to get to that place where they can do residency. Or maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just wrong and I don't understand the nuances, but that's, I don't know. It just, it, it makes me question if we should have Noah get the boat ready again, because it just, it, it, it just trips me up in such a fashion that I just can't understand how to get to that point in your brain without it being something learned from the community or culture or people around you. Well, to your point, I think that, you know, we've often heard this, you know, throughout our lifetimes that, you know, you're, you're sort of the outcome of the five people that you surround yourself the, the closest to. Um, so, you know, for me, I pick the two of you and there's a couple of other people that, that I pick. Um, and I think that's just inevitable that people are a product of their environment. Um, you hear a lot of times, you know, well, why doesn't have, why doesn't somebody have the ability to, you know, raise up or elevate or break the cycle. Uh, 
that's the reason why is that you only know what you know and if you don't have the experience of you know something greater than yourself something outside of you know the one square mile or the five square miles in which 80% of your life is dependent on uh, or you don't seek out that additional information that you truly become the product of whatever that environment is for good, bad. Um, it just, it is what it is. And I think that's where we also have to have empathy and compassion for those people that, that haven't been able to expand out. And we as leaders, we have to take it upon ourselves and pause, re-educate, uh, and make it known that, you know, conversations, comments, topics, things like this um, are are not acceptable and it's not tolerated. Do you, do you feel that, because OS, your situation, the person doing the rounding had the ability to shut it down right away and, and quickly. Maybe this is the cynical side of me in the community I'm in, which is very conservative. I feel that there is so much passivity towards shutting that down and just like firing someone on the spot for that kind of comment, just to show that this is not acceptable. Do you find that to be the case because it's on the East Coast or West Coast or is it is it a community kind of culture thing where that's okay? I just don't feel like I just don't feel like in in the Midwest where I'm at in the community I'm in that that would be an acceptable thing to really punish someone for because everyone would be super scared of how you'd be thought of afterwards. I personally wouldn't I personally wouldn't care because I feel like you do the right thing and yeah, sometimes doing the right thing can hurt and have consequences, but you do the right thing. Yeah. So, you know, the example that I gave was a patient saying that to a resident and the attending stepped in and, you know, kind of mitigated the situation. Um, so are you, is a question that you're proposing that if an employee were to say something like that, what would the institution do? Correct. I think if you see this kind of attitude in the workplace, do people in healthcare feel that they have the empowerment to shut it down and to report it and that there would be actual consequences? Absolutely. I think especially where I am on the East Coast, any kind of racist behavior like that would immediately grab the attention of HR and I think termination would be inevitable. I, I don't think that any institution here would tolerate that type of behavior. Yeah, I would say at least... In my experience, um, definitely on, you know, kind of either coast, uh, it would be shut down instantly. I think within sort of, you know, middle America, the breadbasket, um, I think in most organizations, it would be shut down. Uh, but there are still organizations that, you know, are predominantly, you know, Caucasian and do not have a lot of diversity. Uh, and I think in those organizations, um, it may be a, a different story, uh, but I can't say, you know, 100% one way or the other. I mean, I can tell you a positive, I guess, personal example of 
I mean, it's not racism, but it's it's a positive. It's, it's an interesting story. So I worked with a with a, a person that um, moved from Arkansas, and I was again I'm Pakistani, just you know, background uh, brown skinned, and uh, you know I was so different and the first Muslim that this person had ever met. And he was just so intrigued and fascinated, not that he was racist towards me, but he was just intrigued by the culture, the background, and just wanted to learn more. Um, so to your point, Andy, there's a lot of areas in the, across the country that don't have that type of melting pot environment or diversity that, you know, they can actually take the opportunity to learn about people's differences and what makes them special and, and, um, you know, really use that to an advantage. And I think that's probably a really good segue for us to hop into the the last topic today. So AJ, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thanks. So a while back, a couple weeks ago, I had a, a wild lucid dream and it came about to kind of formalize a thought that's been in the back of my head of, do we consider the Hippocratic Oath to be super uh, sacrosanct is that the right word Um, does healthcare hold up the Hippocratic Oath and the idea of do no harm to the point where we should hold ourselves implicit into the harm that we are causing patients by the fact that we are not practicing medicine but we're practicing healthcare and the the email that I wrote to both of you kind of outlined the idea of we might treat a patient and have good bedside manner and we might, you know, treat the the cause, the problem of the moment. But because of how healthcare is built in this country specifically, we will bankrupt people because of a family member getting cancer. Uh, I recent, and the reason why I was thinking of this is that the other uh, a couple of weeks ago when I had this dream, previous to that, I read an article of somebody who had done all the right things. Her, her and her husband, you know, saved. They spent, you know, below their income. They, you know, were very frugal with everything. And with the wife, she got cancer. And within five months, they depleted their life savings. They had to refinance their mortgage, lost 12 years of equity on it, on their home. And were basically bankrupt and they had insurance they had coverage but it wasn't enough and i feel that if we look at how the healthcare system is built it is harmful regardless of how great our interactions are when we walk in the doors of a healthcare system when we go to hospital when we meet with a clinician when we get our radiation oncology any part of it those experiences might be great but then, then you go home and there's all of those after effects, those costs that we don't think about or we don't talk about that hurt people in the long run. And I wanted to kind of flesh that out as we talk about the art of medicine and how, how we view healthcare versus medicine. And maybe this is a great way to say we do harm every day inadvertently. And it's kind of tied into that idea of there's no, there's no, um, Gosh, what's what's the word, the phrase I was thinking of? There's no, uh, oh, I forget. I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> um, I'll cut that part out. But when we think about do no harm, you know, medicine, I think, looks at the whole person and healthcare looks at the moment 
those brief moments you actually see the patient. So I wanted to get get your ideas and your thoughts and views on on that as we dive into the art of medicine. Here's kind of how I think about this topic and, and I try to deconstruct it. From the beginning of science and medicine, uh, whether you go back to, you know, pre-Hippocrates to sort of post-Hippocrates in, in the, the legacy that has come since then, medicine has always been a one-to-one situation. It's about a person that has a training and in the science, in the art, in the practicality of being able to listen to the person in front of them, understand what ails them, and then finding a remedy to help that person through uh, whatever that ailment is. And that that remedy could be, you know, scientific medicine, quote unquote medicine as we think of it, um, whether it's surgery, whether it's a pill, whether it's nutrition, whether it's uh, physical activity, Whatever the case may be, that's sort of how I define medicine. And I think today, medicine is still that. It is an art and it is a science and it's balancing both. The problem comes in that if you look back into, um, I forget what year it is. I want to say it's maybe like 94, 96. If you go back and you look up the word healthcare in the dictionary, there's a point in time prior to that, that you actually can't find the word healthcare in the dictionary. It then sort of gets put in, uh, the Associated Press kind of defines it, the correct spelling, uh, and, you know, it kind of takes on a life of its own. And it's that point in time in which you've got insurance companies, you've got uh, the government, You've got the way that we sort of not only track and measure, but the way that we pay uh, physicians and anyone else that works inside of medicine is really about, you know, this productivity metric, which again, productivity is nothing more than what you see in a factory. The more you do and the more productive you are, the more you get paid. And it's that point in time in which you start to see kind of this transition and this scaling happen uh, to which the, the power of the physicians, because we have to remember that there's a point in time in which the majority of hospitals were led by physicians. Physicians were presidents. They were the CEOs. Um, they oftentimes would maybe have an a administrative liaison Uh, But physicians used to lead many of these organizations. And then there's this tipping point in which it transitions and you start to see, you know, people that have MBAs and business degrees and and Six Sigma and Lean and all of those different um, business-led metrics uh, come in and sort of take over the, the leadership thing because there was this promise that they could lead the business of medicine better than physicians could. And that promise 
has never really manifested itself into reality. All it's done is we've seen an increase in productivity, we've seen an increase in costs, we've seen a decrease in the quality of care, and we've seen an increase in financial toxicity. And so for me, I think it's about drawing a line in the sand, understanding that there's a difference between those two worlds, and all of us, again, choosing which world is it that we want, and based off of that decision, then we have to start to implement and do the things that are necessary in order to get back to that world. So for me, I try and use the words that will build that world of medicine. I don't like to say doctors because to me, doctor is someone that is eight and skate and that's it. Where a physician is practiced and trained in the art and science of healing the people that they see. I don't like using the word healthcare unless I'm actually talking to the scaled mediocrity of the industrialization of medicine. To me, what physicians, what therapists, what physicists, what people do on a daily basis is they come to work to practice medicine. That's why they went to school is because they wanted to help somebody that was in a moment of need. Um, but it can't just be me. It can't just be the three of us. It can't just be the, the five or the 15 people that are surrounded us. Everyone needs to start to think about this and realize that the way that we talk, the things that we do, and the actions that we take are really going to sort of separate if we end up taking back and moving to the world of medicine or if we continue to scale this thing that we call healthcare. Um, so I'll, I'll pause because I just said a lot of stuff. Uh, and Wes, you know, maybe you want to chime in. I don't think I can add even one more thing to everything that you said. Uh, I agree with everything you just said, Andy, and so poetically. Uh, you know, healthcare. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, go ahead. I was just going to say so the way that you started this, AJ, is about financial toxicity. Um, and I don't talk about this topic often because as I start to take myself back to that place, I can already feel the tears sort of welling up in, in my eyes and you'll probably start to sense a change in my voice. But fi financial toxicity is real. In 2013, when my dad was diagnosed with metastatic pancreatic cancer, you know, my mom is a former administrator, she's a nurse, and her push was by any means necessary, we're going to get my dad through this and he's going to beat this thing. And very quickly, within about, you know, 10 to 14 days, my dad pulled me aside and he asked, if I go through these treatments, if I go through, you know, all of this stuff, A, what is my quality of life? B, what is my sort of overall survival of this? And C, what is the cost of this? And that was a very real and a very difficult conversation for me to have. And when I laid it all out in front of my father, you know, he came back to me and he said, I don't want to cripple your mother. I don't want to leave this world 
and leave her with all of these outstanding medical bills and have to, you know, worry about if she can keep the house or, or not. I don't want that. And so he made the decision that he was going to live out his life the best that he could uh, with as much quality of life that, that he could have. And, you know, for better or worse, I'm at least happy to say that he made the choice to live and he, he lived the last six weeks of his life at home surrounded by his, his loved ones. But when it comes down to it, the, the choice was an economic choice. Um, and I think that it's that kind of choice that it's sad in today's world that it's a reality and it's a harsh reality and it separates the haves from the have-nots. But it is a reality. Um, and I'm, I don't have the solution to how to solve that. I, I wish I did. Um, but I don't. Yeah, I think you illustrate a very important point out of all of this is when in our culture was it put on us, put on the people, the onus to choose between life and health versus crippling debt for those you leave behind. And that I think is such a well-reported, um, I think that's such a well-reported thing that Atul Gawande did a documentary about with how doctors choose their end-of-life care. And I think beyond just the financial burden that our system puts on us, and Sean pointed out in the podcast when he was guest with us that we spend four times more on healthcare than any other developed nation and have worse outcomes across the board than anybody else. And there are socioeconomic uh, people, I'm not sure exactly the right term, socioeconomists who are looking at America right now and saying we are on the verge of losing our developed nation status. And between the pandemic, our anxiety and depression, when, when you talked about productivity, we're more productive than ever in history and the pay that we receive is not matching that as a whole in this country and you look at countries like the Netherlands who was just voted the most happiest country in the world and what are they doing differently the it's it's a Maslow hierarchy of needs and we have screwed over so many people so that a few people can have a couple more yachts that our basic needs of the Maslow hierarchy of needs cannot even be met or reached by doing everything the quote-unquote right way that we've been told to do. We have the most educated generation right now, the most, you know, the most educated generation and the most, what I would say, emotionally <laughs> in tune with themselves generation and they have the biggest steaming pile of turd to look towards their future and I think that's that's why we're seeing so many problems there's so many systematic changes and I think all of this 
is like like you were saying, Andy, separating the healthcare from the medicine is healthcare doing harm. And healthcare healthcare harms people, not just patients, not just not just the person who comes in because they're they're sick. It harms people. You and I both and I don't know if a West knows, but I know Andy and I both know people who have killed themselves from working in healthcare because they couldn't handle the pressure of it. And we know family members and people, bioethicists, who have to make the decision to say, oh, we discovered this thing during your genome sequencing. It's not why we sequence your genome. And it is something that you should know. But do we tell you because knowing it could bankrupt your family by knowing it because you'd get treatment? You know, hearing those type of debates happening is something that I never thought would be even worth debating. I don't know, Wes, uh, you know, I would love to hear it because I don't know you as well as Andy. I would love to hear more. Um, you know, I'm not going to do the typical you know, where did you come from? Because I'm just assuming you were born in Jersey because that's just me being assuming. But I'm imagining that you have traveled around a little bit around the globe. And what have you seen that in other cultures or in other places you've been, lived in other cities that works well in the idea of medicine versus healthcare? So first of all, Andy, I sympathize with your story and I'm sorry about the loss of your father. Um, you know, it, it's really sad. And uh, AJ, I did not uh, grow up in, uh, I was not born in New Jersey. I was actually born in Pakistan and I lived there uh, from my early childhood and moved to New Jersey probably around the age of uh, five or six. So, and then I've been in New Jersey since. But, you know, talking about medicine as we know it here in the United States, um, I can tell you about my father-in-law who lives in Pakistan, uh, my wife's father. A couple of years ago, he got, you know, really ill and we got that dreaded phone call that, you know, he's not doing well. You guys should, you know, come as soon as you can. And so we just did what we had to, jumped on a plane and went to Pakistan immediately. Um, and, you know, when we were here, we were told that he was uh, in the ICU and not really doing well. So when we finally got there, he was doing better. And, you know, thank God he's okay now. But it was pretty scary to be in a different country. And, you know, the way that we look at hospitals and the tools and the resources that they have. And the second question that they ask you is, can you pay for it? Whereas in Pakistan, the first question they ask you is, this is going to cost this much. Do you have the means to, to pay for it or no? And if you say no, then they're not going to offer those services. Um, but that conversation happens up front right off the bat um, before they even do anything. I mean, you know, if you think about a patient that's not breathing and that patient needs oxygen over here, you get it immediately. In Pakistan, it's not the case. They actually ask the family members, can you pay for it? Um, and, you know, you kind of have to sign off on things. And it, it, it's, it's scary, but it's also a simpler time. And you know, some people will just make that decision that I'm not going to go to the hospital. I'm not going to seek medical care. I'm just going to live out the rest of my days 
however long I have in the comfort of my own home with my family. You know, I, I think the medicine trans relates to all of us in some capacity uh, through our experiences of our own or of our family. And it's something that we all cope with in some kind of fashion. I can tell, and I, I'm going to assume something or guess something here. I, I feel like all of our voices are very heavy today. And I think that it, it just seems like the weight of the topics at hand today have a lot of emotional baggage with them. And that a lot of the things that are going on right now are are weighing down. I mean, Wes, you're you know, getting maybe three hours of sleep at a, at one time is definitely worth weighing you down. And, and Andy not being able to probably get to bed before midnight just from all of the email silliness you have to deal with as well. Um, but at least the one thing I can say is that I love you guys. I, I know that this is, this time, <laughs> this time is not easy for anybody. No matter how well off you are, how bad off you are, it's it's emotionally draining. I know my wife and I talked today about just we are just spent. Our we're running on fumes. It feels like, and I I think we might have another year of this if we go off of the Spanish flu lasting twenty five months in America. You know, my my guess is yeah, it's probably going to last a year or two years, excuse me. And I think the best thing we can do is talk about it. Know that you guys are loved and we just got to support each other. And I think that will start the healing process. And the best we can do is just people who listen to this podcast, let them know that we are here for you. And if you need some good medicine of phone call a chat a hug even if it's virtually you know we we have to support each other through this time and maybe bring medicine back i would agree with that um i know one of the things that that you know based off off of everything that that we talked about um i kind of like to to read this um so in the next couple of days, um, I'll be celebrating my birthday. And uh, I think AJ knows this. Wes, I'm not sure if you do, but um, there's a book by Ryan Holiday called The Daily Stoic. Uh, and I've read it every day for probably the last three years. Uh, and so the passage that I'm going to read is just a really short one. Uh, and it happens to fall on on the date of my birthday. Uh, and so the quote is better to trip with the feet than with the tongue. And below that is sort of Ryan Holiday's takeaway, which is you can always get up after you fall, but remember what has been said can never be unsaid, especially cruel and hurtful things. And I kind of want to end today's podcast with that and with the reminder for everyone that's out there that's listening that our words build worlds. And inside of the world of medicine, the words that a physician, a clinician, a physicist, a social worker, 
anyone inside of the wor world of medicine, the words that you use in front of a patient build their world. And it determines their journey inside of this thing called medicine. And so we all need to remember that when a patient gives us their time and attention and their trust, we have to make sure that we're using the right words to build their world and help them manage their journey inside of the world of medicine. And so with that, AJ, I'll turn it over to you to wrap up for today. I think with those words that the, the best takeaway today is like the Stoics before us, we need to understand that life has its ups and downs, hard days and good days, and that through it all, we work to continually improve ourselves. And I think even the most cynical of Stoics, Diogenes, would say uh, without friends, without a community, without those around us to help support us and we support others, then we're just a bunch of dogs laying in the street. So if you need, need anybody, if you need to talk, need help, I'm AJ Monpettit on LinkedIn and Twitter and reach out. You can find me on Twitter at OSFMirza. And as always, on all the social channels, uh, including LinkedIn, you can find me under my name, Deplume, Cancer Geek, uh, and I'm Andy DeLeo. And so with that, I bid you farewell, good day, and remember that your words build the world within medicine, and it's done at the end of one. <laughs>